We want to welcome our audience to another episode of Minority Report with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in media, business, and tech, and uh, we're excited. Today, we actually have Doug Robinson, who's uh, hanging out with us. Doug is currently doing a lot of work with uh, COVID Alliance, and he's the tech and data partnerships lead with COVID Alliance and a whole lot more. Let's jump in and get to know Doug. Doug, what's happening, man? How are you? I'm good. I'm happy to be alive and healthy and, and hopefully add some value to the planet. Hey, amen to that. Doug, for our audience uh, that may not know you, tell us a little bit about what you're up to. Obviously, I mentioned COVID Alliance, but uh, you're doing a whole lot more. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, with the COVID Alliance, which is a kind of a nonprofit focused on bringing together best-in-class experts, policy, science, tech, and health, you know, how do we respond to the global pandemic? And we're working with public health departments across the country to kind of increase situational awareness. You know, how do we leverage some tools that we've made, one of which is called the pandemic management tool, to provide them with various data overlays to kind of use geolocation data. You know, we have a social distancing piece that's pretty unique. And then how do we do all of this with data and privacy at the forefront, looking at underserved communities, really, you know, figuring out how do we stand down surveillance, but stand up uh, social support systems, because I think we're getting a little, I mean, the, the numbers that speak for themselves, but, you know, as we look at recovery, you know, we need to be challenged to do this kind of like, you know, at the lowest level in a neighborhood uh, in the city, right? You know, at the lowest level in community, if we can get it right there, then it gives back more of the trust and really empowers people at the places where they live and work. And then I'm doing uh, work with a, a really cool German company called Data Wallet, which is interested in how do we get paid for our data, right? At the end of the day, Facebook, Google, whoever has been making lots of money on our data. And as we move forward, where am I able to get paid for a Coca-Cola advertising or you know, a Nike ad? How am I able to pick up a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars a year from my own data? And so creating my own data wallet. And then I spent, you know, quite a bit of time building out Fresh Digital Group where we did some groundbreaking next-gen technology programs and platforms, a few hundred voice apps, Apple Watch, you know, all kinds of what was ever coming next from a technology creative perspective, we looked at building that. That's cool. Before you started doing all that, tell us a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and uh, a little bit about your background and where you're from. Yeah, so I grew up in San Jose, California. So I was one of, uh, I don't say the few black people in the neighborhood, but my, you know, my, my mom was from Central California. And so she was part of the migrant worker, you know, her dad hung out with Cesar Chavez. So he would come over to the house. My dad was from Iowa. He had a track scholarship to San Jose State. And so he was the older guy on the team, you know, the guys in the fist in there. So he was on that team. Uh, he didn't make the Olympics. So whatever, they came together, settled in San Jose, which is really the hub of Silicon Valley. And then from there, I went to UCLA. You know, I thought that uh, the idea of could I make like a, a vibe fast company would be really cool. And then I kind of thought that, you know, we wouldn't read magazines anymore. So I needed to get my technology pretty tight. So then I moved back up north, did a stint in Chicago, and then settled in New York to try to be what I thought was like a digital Don Draper, you know, making cool stuff that kind of changed the world. Yeah. You know, you talked about where you grew up and, you know, some of the stuff that was sort of surrounding you. 
there. Uh, how do you think that sort of uh, impacted your identity and, you know, and sort of the culture you grew up in? Well, as one of five black males in an all-boys private school as a poor scholarship kid, I had an impact of being the poorest kid in the class, always trying to fit in. I mean, you know, lots of different things. But, you know, at a, at a larger scale, I thought that I felt that I there was a way that I could impact the planet. I think everyone thinks that Silicon Valley is about money. Silicon Valley is about how do we make the world a better place? And, and what just seemed to happen is that the money came and all the efficiencies, but that was never really what it was about. And so how do you create something or build something or, you know, how do you do something that really drives that systemic change wherever, government, public policy, doesn't matter. So I think that that really really drove me. And then I think kind of, you know, moving to the East Coast and really becoming a New Yorker was how do you do things at scale, right? Because you can always make nice, cool little things, but how does, how does it scale? How does it become something that a million people need or want or have to have in their daily life? Or how does it, looking at the data behind the scale, it's able to impact more people to then make the next iteration that's better. Yeah. You know, Doug, you, you've touched on a, a couple things so far here in this conversation, whether it's the data wallet company, whether it's the COVID alliance. One thing that I, I see that is interesting is the data piece. It seems like data and being involved in leveraging data for good, right, is something that you're highly interested in. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that, so, you know, I have never coded, but mm-hmm. as a Silicon Valley guy, I've been able to lead teams and companies as someone who is a product manager at that level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that in any, almost any business, the more data you have, the easier it is to make decisions. And whether that's this pandemic or whether that's, you know, things that I want to sell consumers or whether that's even sneakers, right? When you, when, when I go to look for a pair of Jordans that just released, you know, they have data that they're looking at that says we're going to release 5,000 shoes. That's going to create this much, you know, hype. And then if we want, we can release 2,000 more in six months and we know those will move within the two days. So all of that is driven by data. And so I think as I get closer to data scientists and, and all these deeper layers of data, I like to see how it affects our everyday and bring that to bear to also on another side help, you know, people of color and, and kind of even the playing field. Can you use data to even the playing field? And I think that's, we're at that point right now where that's a possibility. Yeah, and, and you're touching on a, an interesting point that I know is top of mind for all of us, especially as we deal with this pandemic, right? The people that seem to be dying at a faster rate are people that look like us, right? And so um, can you talk a little bit about how the, the COVID alliance is getting that data to the folks that are dying at a faster rate and, and sort of helping out there, or is that part of the goal, which I believe it is? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, to understand the true impact of, of COVID, you know, on our most disproportionately impacted communities, we have to collect data on testing, diagnosis, hospitalizations, you know, and the deaths that are, you know, really driven by our, our demographic. And so if you if you look, and I mean, you know, maybe we don't get into it, but, you know, once that they knew disproportionately what type of people were dying, they didn't want to test anymore or they 
wanted to enact government programs to force people to go to work or, you know, all these things were, again, you know, driven by the data. So we feel part of what we're doing is how do we, okay, you've, you know that you have it. How do we get you tested? How do we get a mobile test to you? How do we get you uh, housing to quarantine you? You know, how, how do we leverage all of these pieces of technology and access and all these things and bring them together in an efficient way to really, again, help people who are disproportionately affected? Because if there was, I mean, you know, if 80% of the people dying were wealthy and Anglo-Saxon, you know, there would be other systems in place or being made to, to help and, and supplement that. And so I think that I have a responsibility to, to definitely play a role. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. You know, you've obviously done a lot of great things in, in your career and uh, a lot of accomplishments. Where where does this sort of rank, you know, as you're sort of working through that? Tell us about, like, how this is a, is a priority, you know, for uh, for you and, and how that's working. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the career has really been about, let's make some cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And then let's make some cool stuff that makes money. And then let's make some cool stuff that maybe changes the world. And now it's in that let's make some cool stuff that changes the world and saves lives and fixes people. You know, I've worked on other things that have saved lives. But in this realm, I'm really lucky to be working with some amazingly highly intelligent people who I'm not the smartest guy on the team by far. And so I can kind of learn more on a daily basis with this group than probably ever before. You know, I've, I've led a lot of teams where maybe I was the smartest guy or one of the smartest guys, but now kind of being on the lower end of it is pretty incredible because I can see daily what we're able to move the needle on that is, it has an opportunity to impact the entire country on how we look at public health and how we change, as I said, social kind of thinking around the next pandemic or the next, you know, thing and how do we institute new rules? Because the, the one thing this is an opportunity for is to bring out new paradigms of doing things that help all people. And I think we have to really, really address that. Uh, that's fascinating. So tell me about like how that might almost sort of impact maybe your way of thinking about like what you sort of want to do next, you know, like this has to sort of open up a, a sort of new vision on on everything. You know, this is an unprecedented sort of experience we're all sort of living through where we get, and, and you're, a, you know, an example of being able to take an amazing background and then apply that into a, a scenario that, you know, who knows if we go through something like this again. How does that sort of open up your horizons and things like what? what feel yeah, like? I mean, I definitely think we'll be back here on some level. But for me, so my my whole thinking was always around I want to know everything in mobile because I know that the phone is going to be our personal remote control to the planet. Check. Then I moved into, I want to know everything about voice because that's a more efficient way for us to get things done. How do I create frictionless living? Right. I have a thought. I want you to get a book. You talk into your phone. It happens. Done. Then I wanted to get really good on data because I want to really be able to think about data and privacy at that next level and be able to challenge some of the big guys or at least be a voice in the room that gets it. And so now we're kind of, we're, we're in the middle of that. And so the, the future is my hopefully ability to deploy any product at any level faster and more effectively than bigger organizations or governments or whoever it is that can 
drive, again, scale, impact, and, and are cool, right? At the end of the day, it was like, you know, I had a discussion earlier where we were talking about the deck in our company. And I was like, guys, this deck is pretty unsexy, you know? Like, it's cool, but like, I mean, you know, let's bring some sexy because, you know, if we're going to solve the, the, the problem, if we're going to save the world, then let's like Will Smith it and have some fun with it. Let's get jiggy with it, you know? So how do you do that at CEO high levels of, you know, talking to Obama CTO and, you know, stuff like that. So I look at that closely. Nice. And I want to ask you a question. One question we always ask every guest on the show is about work-life balance. And if there is a such thing, and, you know, you just said that you're trying to save the world, right? So how does that leave time for anything else or does it? And, and what's your, your thoughts on work-life balance? Yeah, work-life balance. I mean, I, I would say I'm still figuring that out. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, people of color have to work harder. That's a fact. Mm. So learning efficiencies early, I think, is critical. And then making decisions on, you know, what you want, right? When you watch, like, you know, Kobe and the Muse, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but, like, Kobe's like, I wanted to be the best. I knew I had to make sacrifices, right? I'm sure someone's watching Last Dance. You look at Jordan. Jordan's, Jordan's like, everybody can talk about what they want, but they ain't won nothing. So work-life balance is, you know, yes, once you obviously, you know, kids, family, et cetera, that alters and changes everything. Yeah. But when you're at, you know, 18, 25, whatever it is, you have to make a decision. Do you want to be a big player, a player, or just in the game? Yeah. Okay. And if you make that decision, because everybody says it, but when you make that decision, then you have to understand what it takes to actually make that happen. Mm. And, Again, as a person of color, it's going to be a little bit harder. So you need to bake that in that you may have to spend an extra five hours more than other people. You may have to attend some more events than other people. You may have to, there's a lot of extra that you need to be participating in and doing on a regular basis. And you need to buy into that or you need to make another plan. So none of that to me has worked like balance. So, like, if you, if you want, like, if you want to win in America, that's not what this is. If you want work life balance, then move to Denmark, move to Norway move to Sweden. There's a lot of work-life balance there, right? Germany. You want to make it here? I don't know. I don't know. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and as, as someone who said when they came into the industry, wanted to be the uh, digital Don Draper and now trying to save the world, did you have any mentors along the way? And if so, what, what makes up a, a good mentor? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, there's a period when I was younger you know, I went to private school, like zero to fifth grade. And then my parents both lost their jobs. And so all of a sudden we were just poor. And yeah. so I had to go to public school. And it was crazy just from, you know, you imagine, and I'm an only child and like whatever. But my sixth grade teacher, who was a Stanford triple MBA brother, he really mentored me on being like, look, this is just this little moment, but you, you have a possibility to do some great stuff. And so I will be harder on you than all these other kids and you're going to be ready to roll with that. Hmm. And it was really interesting because, you know, regardless of the teachers I had in high school and how they tried to kind of help or even college and all the other stuff, I mean, that really still resonates to this day. And maybe because it's probably one of two black teachers I've ever had. I don't know. That could have something to do with it, you know? You know, professionally, you know, I was lucky enough 
right after the last, uh, 2008, 2009. And there was a group of us that were ready to start companies. And I was lucky to know that group. Mm-hmm. And so within that group, you had 10 or 15 CEOs who, you know, I was like, I'm not, I barely belong in this crew, but was happy to really, again, learn from them and be around them and, and listen to what they try to help me work through and my issues as being a CEO. So I think that was, that was pretty good. And then, you know, again, in your thirties, you got to start aligning yourself with friends who are successful and helpful and then really try to understand you. And hopefully that drives you and gets you where you need to go. So they, they, I think your friends are your mentors, to be honest. I think that's pretty good advice. Any other advice that, you know, you would pass along to sort of folks that are coming in to a professional environment and more particularly like kind of like in, in the industry that, that you're really proficient in, you know, any other? I mean, my advice is you got to work harder, harder than you think. Everybody thinks they're working hard. I want to work so hard. I'm so no, no, no. Work harder. <laughs> and then I think you have to have a hobby. So, you know, one of my friends had told me, he's like, oh, you're going to start a company. You need a hobby. And I was like, okay, well, he was like, because you're going to spend 90% of your time on something, 95%. That is your work-life balance, a hobby. And so Mm. uh, I learned uh, I had always wanted to DJ, and it really coalesced around a Christmas party where I was at this cool party, and the music just wasn't working. Good people, good music, everything was great. And I was like, that's it. I'm like, next year at Christmas, I will be able to DJ this party on some level so that the music is on point. And so, you know, that moved me on a, a crusade of, I'm, I'm more of a, a I don't want to say EDM, but like house, progressive house, tech house. You know, I'm, I'm a, you know, house kind of guy. And so I spent a lot of time and I'd already spent time chasing DJs all over the world. So it fit into my thinking of really diving into a couple genres and mastering them. And so now when I'm behind the decks with the artist, you know, I can kind of like, oh, that's cool. And so that really saved me as a CEO. So I would say work harder, hobby, and then always, I guess, uh, people should look into groups that they don't normally associate with. I don't think people do that enough, you know, because if you do that, it can help you roadmap your vision because whatever your vision is, you need to, you need to, you need to roadmap it. Right. Like, you know, vision boards and all these things be like, that's, that's real. So I think that's super important. And then you have to figure out what skills you need to make that vision happen. You know, it's like, oh no, I'm really good at this and I'm really good at that. Well, no, really, are you self-aware enough to understand how good you really are? Because then let's break that down and then work on being better at this. Like, I'm great at talking to people. Well, are you good at articulating your thoughts? Are you a good listener? Are you able to take great notes? Because even experts take notes. You know, where are you in those lanes of being, you know, good at X? And I think as, as people try to drill down to the basics, then I feel that that's that's a really good path to winning and constantly moving your needle, right? Because we all get in ruts and we all, you know, things happen, situations. But how are you constantly moving your needle on your growth trajectory? Because it's just like it's just like when people go to the gym, right? They go to the gym for two weeks and then they think they're supposed to look you know, amazing. We're going to, the, you know, it's diet and consistency and work and all that, all those. And then one day you, you, t- you go, you get in the shower and you're like, you know, and so I think that's, you know, that's, that's how it's the same thing. It's a consistent movement towards a specific goal and a vision around that. So. And, and to be disciplined enough to stay on that path too, right? You gotta be disciplined. 
Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I think that goes without saying, but yes, discipline yeah. is critical. You know, it takes 21 days to form a habit. You know, if you stick to that, that will teach you discipline. I'll segue. I, I sold books door to door when I was in college and we had to take a cold shower every morning and all this crazy stuff. Cause imagine knocking door to door trying to sell kids books pretty hard. And so they had all these things you did. And I, I'll never forget. It's like, I was like getting up at 6 a.m. Like, man, this is so hard. And it was crazy around the 21 days, the cold shower, the getting up and everything, all the habits just lock in. So, yeah. you know, that works for anything. I just don't think people really take it seriously enough. You know, a couple of things you, you touched on there. The one waking up at 6 a.m. And, and the two is working hard. You know, the one thing that sort of levels the playing field, no matter your gender or your, your race or, or anything else is everyone has 24 hours in a day, right? And, and it all, it, it all depends on how you want to spend those 24 hours. And, the, and you're, you're absolutely, and that takes me to that also, I mean, control the controllables. Yeah. I cannot control what I look like. I cannot control how you're going to act. I control, so I control how hard I work, my attitude, and yeah, some of those, some of the diet, whatever those things are, control the controllables and put yourself in position to win. It's awesome. Awesome. Solid advice. So fun question. I love asking every guest on the, on the podcast, give us your top three apps on your phone that you use, <laughs> not name email and you cannot name your calendar. Well, kind of, as I said earlier, DJ, so DJAY. Yeah. So I can now run into any party. Bluetooth my phone anywhere and DJ for my watch. For me, I think that's pretty, you know, I, I can be leaning up on the corner and be like, wait, hold on, let me change the song. So that's probably my number one jam. You know, when I was a CEO, I resisted Slack, but as a global pandemic, whatever guy, Slack is pretty, pretty amazing. And then uh, CoStar is my jam. I don't know if you guys are, CoStar is kind of like a, you know, astrology. It's like a way for you to kind of help your mental health and self-awareness. Mm. Um, so I, I pay attention to that. And then, and obviously, you know, LinkedIn, I mean, you got to get a network, learn from it daily. You know, I think kids hear that, but they don't really understand what that means. You know, I'm on a call yesterday and someone's like, you need a source of food for, you know, da -da -da, underserved, da -da -da. and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, my buddy, A, I got a buddy who just became CMO of this. I got another buddy that's already working with Jose Andreas on that. Like, done. You know what I mean? Like, done. And so how you can be more efficient once you have, I think, a strong LinkedIn network. Yeah, um, power of network. It's power of I wonder if the younger generation, though, thinks that they have a network, but their network instead is on Snapchat and TikTok. They do think they have a network. And you're, the problem is, is, look, all of these tools are different, right? Like Facebook, you know, connect me with people that I've come across in my life. Instagram, that's my daily, that's my magazine of my life. The pictures, right? The yeah. stories or something. Snapchat is what am I doing in this moment? That's what stories is as well. But LinkedIn is your business life. Yeah. Right? Like I used to have an intern, their job was to go through my LinkedIn and submit to me articles from it on a daily basis, just because I know that the people I know, whatever they're posting, it's real stuff. It's valuable to me. So daily, I wanted to see 10 or 15 of the top articles in different arenas. 
and then I would review them before like before dinner every night. Like be like, oh, so and so is talking about this, and oh, he's thinking about that. Oh, he just started that new job. So hmm. LinkedIn is a is a superpower, to be yeah. honest. I mean, Snapchat's cool. You know, we were a Snapchat early partner. I made many a filter. We even built a business around people creating their own filters. So I know a lot about Snapchat, but that is not necessarily going to f- help you get smarter, better, faster when it comes to business in your career. Righto. Well, listen, thanks so much for hanging out with us. A lot of our audience likes to stay in touch. How can our audience find you and follow you? Please let them know. Yeah, I'll be mobile guy Doug, Instagram. You know, my email is mobile guy at Gmail. My LinkedIn, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, that's, I mean, those are that's three places to find me. There we go. Well, thanks for hanging out with us. And everyone, thanks for hanging and, and listening and watching. You can find us everywhere. You find your audio and your video. Just look for Minority Report Podcast. Look for the logo. Thanks. <laughs>